Well, hello, Compassion Christian. My name is Marcus, and I am one of the pastors here at the church. And I am excited to be here, and I'm excited that we have all of our regional campuses with us as well as we continue in our series that we are calling This Is Us. In this series, our hope is to look at uh, relationships, which are complex and sometimes messy, but amazing at the same time. And we want to look at is how the teachings of Jesus intersect with this important area of our lives. And what our goal was as we went into this series, our goal was that we would come up with a title for each one of the messages. That the moment you heard the title, you would know exactly what the message was going to be about. And so last week, the title of the message was, We're Just Roommates. And our senior pastor, Cam Huxford, taught on the topic of marriage. And that was an amazing message. And if you didn't have the opportunity to hear it, but you're interested in it, you can go to our website or use our app. Those are two great ways to do that. Uh, but tonight, or today, well, the topic or the title is going to be is, I hope they turn out all right. <laughs> and all the parents in the room feel it, right? They're like, yes. And so... Today, we're talking about parenting. Now, I don't normally start a sermon off this way, but the way I want to start off is I just want to throw some like caveats out. I just want to get some things out of the way right from the beginning. The first thing I want to get out of the way is, in one message, there's no way that I can actually address every aspect of parenting. I can't give you every great tip I know or that's out there. It's not possible. And so what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to try to kind of unpack one big idea that by the time we're done with this topic tonight, or the, the goal will be is that using this one big idea, you can, you can affect every decision you ever make as a parent. That's the goal, which means that we're kind of focusing on the why of parenting, not the how. And so I went ahead and did something for you because I know, I mean, if I do my job well today, if God touches you, the, gets you with the spirit today, then you're going to walk out of here excited about taking steps in your parenting. And so I went ahead and put a bunch of resources in your bulletin, right up there at the top. The idea being when you get fired up about like practical things to do with parenting, you can go to any of those three resources and uh, it'll be like drinking out of fire hose. It'll be really, really good. But the other thing I want to get out of the way right up top is, is that I know that a lot of people that are hearing this message right now, they aren't parents. I get that. But what I do want to point out is, is I know that being not, not being a parent means that you've never thought about your child. Uh, I hope they turn out all right. But you have thought this. You've thought, I hope I turn out all right about yourself, right? And I've felt that too. I've asked that same question. I've had that same concern. And so I want you to know that I understand that compassionate Christians are smarter than the average bear. And so my trust is, is that you'd be able to take this main principle we talk about and just adjust it to apply to you personally. And if you stay engaged, I think you'll still get a lot out of it. And the last thing I want to say is I also know uh, that not only do we not have parents in the room, but we also have like the subject of the message with us. In many of our services, we have students we have middle schoolers and high schoolers, and if you're a middle schooler or a high schooler, I want you to know that I am totally going to hook you up during this message. My goal is, is that by the time this is done, is that I will spare you from having to have lots of long and awkward conversations with your parents. That's my goal. But for that to happen, you have to do something for me. I need the students in the room to be Christian cows. Do you have any idea what I'm talking about? Okay, a Christian cow does the Christian moo. And that's when a pastor says something and you agree with it, so you go, mmm, right? That's the Christian moo. 
And so here, here's the thing. As I'm, as I'm talking tonight, as I say things, particularly to students' perspective, as I say things that you agree with, or when you hear it, you go, yes, I wish my parent would, would, would lead like that. I wish they would do that for me. Then you throw in a Christian moo. And as you, mm, along with the message, your parent will look over at you and go, oh, I didn't know they thought that. I didn't know they wanted that. Mm, got it. And that just spared you a long and awkward conversation right there. You're welcome. All right? So here, well, uh, listen, softball, I'll toss this thing out there. It's going to be just like, it's on a t-ball stand, as easy as it could be. Let's, let's imagine that I would put out a scripture like, uh, well, how about this? Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. And all the campuses of our church, all of the students went, there it is. There's a herd of you out there. I know, right? But parents, you can always get on this action too because the way that that scripture ends is it says, rather bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. So there it is. All right, here you go. Look, y'all just had a whole full conversation in two syllables, all right? I'm helping here. I'm trying to help. Yeah, I also realized though that students, you didn't necessarily know I was going to hook you up like this. You might not be sitting with your parents. And so I just want you to know you have my permission. Send them like a cow emoji or something like when it applies or you can send them a GIF if you want to. If you search cow on an iPhone, that's the first thing that comes up, all right? So there you go. But here, students, also help me out, though, because I know how your minds work. I was a student pastor for seven years. I know that like, right now you're like, oh, I could find a better GIF. I know I could find a better GIF. But if you just spend your whole like, evening on your phone, I'll be really self-conscious about it, and I'm a delicate flower on the inside, so like, just don't do that because I'll be really self-conscious. Okay, deal? Everybody on the same page? Good? Sweet. Okay, all right. All the caveats out of the way, which means let's go all the way back to the beginning. I hope they turn out all right. Let me show you who I think of when that phrase comes out of my own mind or out of my own mouth. This is uh, my family. Uh, that's my lovely lady, Lauren, and our kids, Andrew and Ellie. Andrew's four, Ellie is three, and I know it's a cliche, but when they were born, everything changed for me. Everything. In fact, I don't necessarily even know how it worked, but when, when Lauren and I went to the hospital to, to have Andrew, I don't know when it happened, but the hospital staff managed to sneak in a tear duct implant on me, all right? Because these things were essentially broken until he was born, and now they work fine. Maybe even a little overactive, because then I went in, we went in to have Ellie, and I, I mean, they, they added upgrades. I don't know. I, not only do they work, but I get great water pressure. Like, it's a, it's a problem. I don't know how to even control it anymore, because the bottom line is, is the moment we had kids, it's like my heart went into those children, and now what they feel, I feel, and what hurts them hurts me. And my guess is, is that most of the parents in the room know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I didn't even think about the mood there, but that's perfect. There you go. Uh, so the, the reason that I say that is, is that my family might look really different from your family. You know, maybe my kids are younger. Maybe my kids are older. Maybe I have more kids. I have less kids. Maybe you're a mixed family. Maybe you're a single parent. Our families could look really different, but as different as our families can look, there are still universal things that every parent shares, and one of them is, is the vast majority of parents at all of our different campuses have that thing where what hurts their kid hurts them. That's universal. And there's another thing that's universal amongst parents that's going to be kind of the focus of a lot of what we talk about tonight, 
And that's this. It's this sense that we as parents want our kids to be great. We want our kids to be great. Now, now the way, even that phrase, that phrase that we started off this, the, the, the message with, that idea of, man, I hope they turn out all right, like that's just like the worried, scared version of it. <laughs> we hope they're at least they're okay, but like in most of the time, like in most situations, we don't want them to just be all right. We want them to be great. We want them to be amazing. And what we usually mean by that is that we want our kids to have a better life than we did growing up. We want them to have more. We want them to have more stuff, more experiences, more opportunities. We want them to have a better life. We want them to be better than we were growing up. That's usually what we mean when we say that we want our kids to be great. And that's why we get them to their practices. That's why we make sure they're keeping their grades up. That's why we set up extra meetings with their teachers. That's why we sign them up for sports camp and we make sure they're getting signed up for a whole bunch of different activities. That's why we don't want her to date him. That's why we do want him to date a girl like her. That's why we don't want him hanging out with those certain friends. That's why we take their keys. That's why we take their phones. That's why we care so much push so hard, pay such close attention is because parents want their kids to be great and we put everything we have into making that a reality. That's universal amongst parents. And well, the reason I know that that's universal, even beyond my own experiences and the occasional moo I get while I'm talking, is that this is something that transcends cultures and even time periods because we actually have an account of a woman who lived 2,000 years ago in the ancient Middle East. That different of a culture, that different of a time, and yet we can see in this encounter that she cared very much. She was willing to go really far to make sure her kids were great. And in this account that we have, we see this woman meet with Jesus and in this encounter, we can see that Jesus actually cares about her kids being great too. But as we look at this account together, we'll see that maybe the thing that should concern us as parents, that should catch our attention as, as people that are in charge of little kids or nearly grown kids or even adult kids, the thing that should concern us is, is that the issue that comes up in this story, in this account is, not that we shouldn't worry about whether or not our kids are great. It's that if anything, the greatness that we're pushing for might be settling for too little. And if we look at this account together, you'll see it along with me. So this is in Matthew chapter 20, verse 20. If you have your own Bible, this would be a good time to bust it out. If you don't, there are Bibles in all the different meeting places on all of our different campuses and uh, if you don't have either one of those or care about either one of those, then don't worry. Uh, it's going to go up on screens and I'm going to read it out loud. So really, there's, you're going to get a lot of versions of this all at once, all right? But Matthew 20, starting in verse 20, that's where we're going together tonight. The only thing you really need to know uh, to start this thing off is that when it refers to the sons of Zebedee, they're talking about guys named John and James who are two of Jesus' closest 12 followers. Here we go. Verse 20 says this, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him and her sons, came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before Jesus, she asked him for something. And Jesus said to her, What do you want? 
And she said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. All right, so uh, mom just basically did the equivalent of walking up to the coach in front of the entire team and saying, hey, my sons should be the captains of the team over all of those guys, right? That's essentially what just happened. And while hopefully all of us have resisted the temptation to do something like that, uh, we understand, we understand where she's coming from. Because we get it. She wants her sons to be great. And yes, she recognizes that Jesus kind of has to be number one. But surely her baby boys, John and James, should be number two and number three. They should be the second and third most powerful people in all of Jesus' kingdom. And again, we're going to look at this account. And I'm telling you, as we unpack this the immediate thing that might be jumping into our minds is like, how dare she? That's really crazy. Shouldn't, shouldn't do something like that. But ultimately what the story shows is, is the issue is not that she wants them to be great. The issue is that she has too small view of greatness, including the greatness of Jesus himself. Because this is what we understand from what's already happened. You take the context of other scripture, other stories, you take the, what we know not only from, from the scripture around it, but even from what she said, she's talking about Jesus' future kingdom. This is all showing us that the mother of James and John believes that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the foretold savior that was prophesied about in the Old Testament. And she believes that. Most of Jesus' followers, the time this account happens, most of them believe that, but they have a real difficulty understanding exactly what it really means. They have too small of a view, if anything. It all comes from kind of confusion of what the Bible said about the Messiah. It begins with this. The word Messiah comes from a word in Hebrew that basically means to smear or anoint, usually with oil. And in the history, so, so Messiah literally means anointed one. That's what Messiah means. And so in the Old Testament, in the history of Israel, there were actually lots of messiahs, little m messiahs, but there were many of them because anyone that was anointed was referred to as a messiah. So that's priests, that's prophets, and that's kings, primarily kings. And so as these prophecies would come out about this great messiah, it would talk about this anointed one's power, it would refer to healing and, and restoration, but what it led to is, is that the followers of Jesus did believe that he was the Messiah, but what they thought that meant was, is that he was going to be an earthly king. And that he was coming to heal, but he was coming to heal Israel by getting rid of the Romans. And he was coming to restore, but he was coming to restore Israel and break them in earthly power again. And so their whole thing was they were convinced that at some point Jesus was going to overthrow the Romans. He was going to kick them all out. He was going to become an earthly king. He would be the king of Israel. Which is why all of his followers were so pumped up about his future kingdom. They thought they were riding Jesus' coattails straight to the top. That's what James and John's mom thought. That's what James thought. That's what John's thought. That's what the majority of his followers believed. And they were all really pumped up about it. They were really excited about getting to that level of power on earth. But Jesus looks at this mother 
With all of these misconceptions, all these things, he doesn't humiliate her, he doesn't smack her down, he doesn't do anything to try to make her look stupid or feel bad or anything like that. He looks at her and he simply says, uh, you do not know what you're asking. You don't know what you're asking. Which is a huge understatement. She really didn't know what she was asking. Because at this moment, when this conversation happens, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem And approximately seven days from this conversation, Jesus is going to be arrested, tortured, and nailed to a cross. And anybody that's familiar with the crucifixion that knows how that story goes knows that Jesus was not crucified by himself. He was crucified with two other criminals. One was on his left hand, and one was on his right John and James' mom had no idea what she was really asking for. None of them did. But Jesus knew, because this wasn't going to be a surprise to him. This was his purpose. This was his plan. This is why he had come in the first place. He wasn't going to Jerusalem to defeat Rome. He was going to Jerusalem to defeat death. And he wasn't going to free Israel from Caesar. He was going to free humanity from sin. And he had no interest in any kind of earthly kingdom because he was the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He was God in flesh. And so he had no interest in some earthly throne. His interest was restoring humanity itself back into a right relationship with God. That's what his kingdom looked like. That's what his plan and his purpose was. If anything, their concept of greatness was too small. Jesus, Jesus knows that they're not going to understand any of this. He gets it. He knows that basically none of his followers are going to understand any of that until after he dies. Or more specifically, until after they see him again face to face after he has risen from the dead. That's when they're going to start to understand. But even understanding that, even knowing that, Jesus still calls them together and has kind of a teachable moment. He says, all right, guys, let's, let's talk this through. Let's figure out what just happened. And so he calls them together knowing they won't understand it yet, but also knowing they'll record it so that you and I, 2000, some, like 2,000 years later, can have this conversation. We get to learn something from this situation. It begins in verse 25, Jesus, when he calls them over. He says, Jesus called them to him and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you for for whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. It's pretty clear. Jesus is saying, well, look, When he says Gentile, he's basically saying this is how the world works. The way the world works is, is that people strive to to build their own earthly kingdoms. They strive to to get power, and then they use their power to maintain their power. And they strive to get authority, and then they use their authority to maintain their authority. It's all about climbing the ladder, even if it means stepping on the heads of the people below you as you go. Claw your way to the top. Fight to make sure at the very least you're staying where you are or going up and nothing else. Fight, rule, power, authority. That's what an earthly kingdom looks like. And then Jesus says, but not so with you. Because in my kingdom, 
my kingdom, if you want to be great, you must be a servant. And what's so fascinating to me about this, this conversation is that if you and I, not having read the story, but if we had gotten up to this point and we said, okay, now we're going to try to predict what Jesus would say to his followers, to me at least, it's kind of surprising that what didn't happen here is he didn't look at James and John's mom and go, how dare you try to worm your son's way into greatness like that? That he didn't call his followers together and go, you shouldn't even want to be great. That's not even what should be in your hearts. That's wicked. That's evil. That's not what Jesus says, though. Jesus looks at his followers and says, you want to be great? Cool. This is how you become great in my kingdom. He encourages greatness. He encourages it. He just specifies that if you're going to pursue greatness, it should be in his kingdom. Which brings us to that big idea, that thing that, that I hope will be the thing that kind of drives us, those of us who are parents or will be one day, or even those who aren't parents in the room who are saying, what is the main idea that even I can apply? It kind of brings it back to this one thing. When you are worried about whether or not your kids will turn out all right, which kingdom are you concerned with? Which kingdom are you concerned with? When you want your kids to be great, in which kingdom do you want them to be great? This question, this prioritization of kingdoms, it can and should drive everything. But I think that what many of us are thinking is, hey, um, can it be both? <laughs> See all of the above. Is that an option on the test? Can't I try to raise my kid to be servant-hearted, but also financially secure and influential and uh, successful by worldly terms? The answer to that is, well, sure, of course. Yeah, I know plenty of people who are both devoted followers of Jesus, but also wealthy and influential. But in our minds, whether as individuals or parents, we must have a priority of which kingdom is more important. Which kingdom deserves our attention? Which kingdom takes that priority because God is always at work? Our God who loves us is always calling us to be great. He's always inviting us to go deeper into his kingdom. He's always challenging us to think of others, to be willing to leverage our time and our energy and our resources to serve others rather than to serve ourselves. That invitation is constant. And not every invitation from God to join him in greatness in his kingdom, not every one of those invitations is compatible with an earthly view of greatness. Some of them are, but not all of them. And as parents, with the influence that we have over our children, we must take this seriously because we have the potential 
to make or break whether or not our kids see that invitation and take it when it's in front of them. Consider this. There's a story of another encounter that occurs in the Bible between someone and Jesus, someone who wants to be great. Uh, the book of Mark tells us about this. And it's, he's described either as the rich young man or the rich young ruler, depending on which gospel you find the story in. And the basic setup is this rich young man wants to be great. And he comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, I've done all of these things, but I still want to make sure, how do I inherit eternal life? Which is just another way in context of saying, how can I be great? And Jesus gives some answers and has some back and forth. And ultimately, this is what he says. He says, Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come Follow me. Now imagine you are this kid's parent. You're his mom or his dad. And he comes home and he goes, Mom, Dad, you will never believe this, but I met Jesus. And I got to talk to him, and he told me that I should take everything that I have, and I should sell it, and I should give it all away to the poor, and then I should go, and I should follow him. What would your response be? Honestly, what would your response be? Because, because more than likely, the parent in us would come out, and we'd be like, uh, he said everything? <laughs> everything. Uh, what, what are you going to eat? Where are you going to stay? What are you going to wear? And if we're going to be frank about it, like the answers we got back wouldn't be very satisfying. Because it would basically be, oh, I plan on trusting God. I plan on trusting God. I plan on trusting God. Like that's basically going to be the answer because he doesn't know. But Jesus has given him the invitation. Jesus has given him the command. And he comes home and he says, what should I do? And I'm telling you, that our response to a scenario like that would be based on which kingdom we have as our own priority and our own hearts for ourselves and for our kids. Because if your priority is that the kingdom of God is most important, then you will still have questions, but you will be working on how to make it work, how to make it possible. But if your priority is the kingdom of your own child or this earth, then you're going to be trying to figure out a way to snuff it out When I was in high school, I was in that stage of trying to figure out, like, go which school to go to and what major to have, like, all that kind of stuff. Those fun decisions. And my dad, as I was in the midst of all this, he made his opinion clear. He looked at me and he said, hey, Marcus, uh, you should go to Georgia Tech. You should get an engineering degree and you should take Spanish, which was really good advice. I mean, that's, like, the easy road to, like, marketable skills Job security, solid paycheck, it was good advice. So I went to the University of Georgia, I got a philosophy degree, and I took Japanese. Sumimasen otosan, all right? All I really remember is how to say sorry, Dad. That's all I really got, all right? All right, listen, y'all know what that is, right? This is really side, this is a freebie on the side. Y'all know what that is, right? Listen, 
when your student, if you have teenagers, when they hit their teenage years, their whole, ev- their whole system, everything, physically, mentally, everything starts to change. And one of the things that changes is they go from needing your approval primarily to needing the approval of their peers. Really painful for adults, really important for students. Because that's what allows them to engage with culture and their friends and ultimately to do things like move out and get jobs and get married and all these other things that you ultimately would love to see your kids experience. But in the midst of that, it's really stressful. Most of us remember, (laughs) it's really stressful and difficult. All of a sudden, you're really worried about what your friends think, what other people think, and you're, you're, you're worrying about betrayal and backstabbing and girls and boys and blah, 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 blah. It's difficult. And so in the midst of that, students, the way they react and interact with their parents changes. Have you ever been on a roller coaster with just the lap bar? You know that? Like, not the harness, not the five-point restraint kind of thing going on, but just one of those ones where it's just like, they just do this. Do you remember the first time you ever got on a roller coaster like that? I remember I was like shaking it like, oh my gosh, like this can't possibly be the only thing keeping me on this roller coaster. I'm shaking, I'm pulling on, I'm tugging on it, I'm shoving, I'm hitting, I'm trying to stand up to see if I can get it to move. And the whole thing is I don't want it to fail. I want to make sure it's going to hold me, right? You're the lap bar, parents. Your student is hitting hitting you pulling on you and tugging on you and they're pushing against you not because they want you to fail it's because they're making sure you'll hold now my version was going to the university of georgia and taking a philosophy degree and taking span taking japanese my dad you would think that could be a source of conflict but it wasn't he never threatened to pull the, my funding for college he never tried to scare me about how it was going to be impossible to find a job or how I wasn't going to be able to pay the bills. He didn't even try to just slip in to make sure that I knew that he was disappointed in me. Nothing like that. Because my father had his priorities in order, and he knew that the decision I had made had not undermined my ability to become great in the kingdom of God. And so I knew that I still had his love and his approval and his support, and that was so meaningful to me Because his priorities became my priorities. And three years later, when I felt called into ministry, I believed, I knew the cost, I knew the difficulty, I knew the challenge, and I said, I still want it because my priorities had become the kingdom of God first. And I wasn't afraid to tell my parents. I was excited about it. I couldn't wait to get home and tell them that this is what I thought God wanted to do in my life because I knew they would ask really tough questions, but only so they could help me figure it out. Because ultimately, I knew they were going to be my greatest supporters. Not so with the rich young ruler. Because Mark tells us that Jesus makes that call to him, that challenge to him, that invitation to him. And Mark says he walked away sad because he had great possessions. And we don't necessarily know his relationship with his parents or how they did or did not influence that. But at some point, he got those priorities off. And Jesus handed him an opportunity for greatness, and he turned it down. And if we aren't careful as parents, if we aren't intentional 
despite our best intentions, we may be pushing our students and our kids towards that same decision ultimately. There's a Christian author, his name is Bob Goff, and he has this quote. The first time I read it, I just, I don't know, I've used it like a billion times. This is, this is what he says. He says, I used to be afraid of failing at something that really mattered to me. Now I'm more afraid of succeeding at things that don't matter. So, parents, let's get practical. How do we actually put this, the kingdom of God first? How do we actually pursue that? How do we make sure that's our priority when it comes to parenting I'd start with this. You should make a profile. That's step one. Create a profile. You need to actually write out what would it look like for my kid to be great in the kingdom of God. To actually list the traits. This is what that would look like. This is what she would be like. This is what he would be like. Really create it. Put it out there so that it's a clear goal in your own mind and heart that this is what you are trying to encourage. This is what you are trying to produce Man, if you've got kids that are young, put them to bed and just carve out the time. If you've got a spouse, make sure you're doing it together. If you've got an older uh, child, if you've got a student, especially if they're in the room right now, do it with them. Set that goal together. If you don't know where to start, this is my recommendation. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. It's referred to as the fruit of the Spirit. And if you're not sure where to start when it comes to what those traits would look like in a, in a kid, in one of your children, it begins like this. Through the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That list is not exhaustive. But any list of what it would look like to be great in the kingdom of God would include that in it. And then the next thing that I would recommend is that you examine how you're doing right now. The current things that are going on in your kid's life, the current things that you're wrestling with, struggling with, trying to figure out what it looks like, Take this new priority and look at how things are going right now. Here's a couple examples. We'll put the Galatians 5 back up here and look at the fruits together. Here's one. Let's say, let's say right now that you want your son to be gentle. Okay, so the next time that he loses a game, the next time he loses a game, don't blame the refs. And don't immediately walk in and start doing things like saying, well, we got to get you faster, better, stronger. Take the opportunity to teach him to lose with grace. To stand up and walk over to his opponent and look him in the eye, shake him in the hand, and congratulate him on a good game. One of those is gentleness. And one of those isn't. Maybe you want your kids to be patient. Maybe you got young kids, and that's just a nightmare. <laughs> They're nonstop, and they want stuff, and they want it now. You want them to be patient, though. How's your example of patience? They're putting nonstop pressure on you, but how is your example of patience? Are you just holding your ground and giving them that patient spirit back? Or are you just handing them the, the iPad because it's just a lot easier? You want your kid to be good. Because you're having these conversations about their path because they want to be a doctor or a teacher or an insurance salesman or a physical therapist. Man, you should be asking them why they want to do these things. 
and making sure they're thinking about how to leverage those jobs for the good of other people and not just for their own financial security. This is what it looks like to set that priority as you parent. And the final thing would be is that now that you've set the priority, filter all of your decisions going forward through that, through that question. Which kingdom am I concerned with? Which kingdom has my priority? Hey, we've set you up really well for this one already, by the way, because we've been talking about camp. <laughs> and I don't know where you've landed in your family with the idea of sending your elementary schooler or middle schooler or high schooler to camp, but you should reconsider that decision. If you've said no, you should reconsider it because there is no decision that will have a greater impact on your students' kingdom-mindedness than camp. And then the last thing that I'll say about that third one is just, again, the difficulty with parenting, especially with trying to pass things through this filter, is that oftentimes parenting isn't this well-planned out, long-term thinking kind of thing. It's like a hot potato, just throw, you know, a live grenade tossed into your lap, right? And so if you're trying to make the right decision and pass decisions through this filter, here's something you really got to work on. You got to work on not freaking out when your middle schooler or high schooler comes home with a new story. When they come home with a new story from when they were out there, you know, they had some kind of sleepover, and they start telling you the story, and within 30 seconds, you're like, you did what? You know, if you do that, like, their fight or flight's going to start, and they're just going to lock up on you. Oh, you know, poker face. Don't freak out. Oh, so you decided to set it on fire. Well, then what happened? They don't know any better. They'll just keep talking. <laughs> if you don't set off their fight or flight, they're just like, oh, okay, well, it went whoosh. And we're like, oh, no. And we tried to kick it out, but then it spread. But Billy's parents were at the liquor store, so we had to run next door. <laughs> they called the cops. Oh, the cops. Uh, where were Billy's parents? Right? I mean, okay, so let's get behind closed doors, look at your spouse, and be like, what was that? You know, but in the meantime, don't freak out. And I mean, it's funny, but at the same time, what it allows you to do is you go back around. Go back around next morning. Hey, remember that story, the, the fire, uh, cops, liquor, all that kind of stuff? Uh, <laughs> hey, I think there's a better way to handle that, bud. Let's talk about that. And suddenly you're talking about it. Instead of screaming and taking stuff and grounding them. And None of this stuff is easy. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm out of time, and it's kind of crazy because the bottom line is, like, I feel like I haven't even started when it comes to the topic of parenting. You should see what I cut out of my sermon. <laughs> it's a lot. The big thing about this is this, this struggle, this daily fight. It's worth it. It's worth it. Because our children are a gift. And while the fight is never easy, it is worth the battle. And what I want to put in front of you is just the encouragement, the reminder that the battle is worth it, the fight is worth it because it's okay to want your kids to be great. 
if anything, God wants it more than you. And the reason that we should be encouraged about this idea of trying to reset these priorities is basically comes down to the fact that the plan that God has for your child, the adventure that he's calling them into, is greater than anything you could have ever come up with on your own because he loves them better than you and he wants their greatness in his kingdom more than you do. And so the reason that it's worth it to set this priority is, is that the best thing you could possibly do is ultimately release your children into the kingdom of God, where he has this incredible plan for them. And to fight for it now will be worth it then, because I am a pastor. I believe that the greatest impact I will make on the kingdom of God will not be because of sermons like this. It won't be because of counseling sessions or any system or program I could ever come up with. The greatest impact that I'll ever make on the kingdom of God will be through Andrew Johnson and Ellie Johnson. And the same applies to you. So fight that good fight and make sure that you are concerned about their greatness in the right kingdom. I pray for us. Father, I thank you that you love my kids more than I do. <laughs> I thank you that you have a plan for their life. You have a purpose for them. And I ask God that you would help me and every other parent in this room help our children discover that desire it and then discover it so that they can pursue what you have for them. Father, help us. Help us to put your kingdom as the top priority in our lives as the thing that we want more than anything else for our children. God, that's difficult because we, we hate to see them hurt. We hate to see them fail. We hate to see them struggle. And it seems like that's what's in front of them if we don't fight for them to succeed from a worldly perspective. But God, you are a good God, a loving God, and a good, good Father. So help us, Lord, to trust that when you say that that's what it looks like to be great in your kingdom, when you say that if we seek first your kingdom, all these other things will be added unto us. May that be the thing that we trust as we parent our children. We ask that you would give us the strength and the wisdom to be able to do that because we cannot do it on our own. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.